Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with Jonathan Schwabisch, the founder of the data visualization and presentation skills firm, PolicyViz. In addition to running PolicyViz, Jonathan is an economist and a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research institute in Washington, D.C., where he conducts research for the Income and Benefits Policy Center. He speaks to us about his latest book, Better Data Visualizations, a guide for scholars, researchers, and wonks. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Jonathan Schwabisch now. Jonathan Schwabisch, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for having me, Tara. Great to uh, chat with you today. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. How did you become interested in data visualization in the first place? And what brought you along this path? Yeah, well, probably like maybe everyone in the data visualization field, I didn't actually start in the data visualization field. Uh, I started my uh, career as an economist. I actually uh, went through graduate school uh, to get my PhD in economics. Um, I worked for a little bit at a nonprofit in New York City, but then really uh, hit my stride personally and professionally, I'd say, uh, down here in Washington, D.C. at the Congressional Budget Office. So I spent um, about a decade there. Uh, I worked primarily on what we call the CBO long-term model. So the acronym was CBOLT, was the, was the long-term micro-simulation model. So I spent a lot of time working on retirement policy and social security. And around 2010, 2011, you know, as I think a lot of people do, they sort of get into maybe, you know, a little bit of a rut at your job and sort of like, I've been doing this a while, you know, kind of looking to spark things up. And, and as I was kind of in that maybe low point of like, I need something a little different, I realized that a lot of the work we were putting out was not getting picked up by the people we were supposed to be communicating with, which was members of Congress, which like, for I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast, you know, journalists are trying to talk to everybody, right? Trying to trying to communicate with everybody. At CBO, our, our primary audience is members of Congress, which is, is difficult, but it's also a luxury because you kind of know exactly what they need and what they want. And I just felt like at the time that a lot of our work wasn't being picked up the way I thought it was. Is you know, other places like the Brookings Institution and Urban Institute and Heritage Foundation um, were all being, you know, got more attention than our stuff. And I started thinking about, you know, why is that? And I kind of ended up stumbling into this world of graphic design and then data visualization and said, oh, wow, there's more to the world than line charts and bar charts. My whole journey, I guess, into the field of data visualization was spurred by this observation that we as analysts, as researchers, as economists, at the time I was at CBO, but sort of more generally, don't really do a good job of communicating our analysis, that we bury it in text and we bury it in tables that nobody reads and you know, only other economists can understand. And, and there has to be a better way. And so that's where I think data visualization uh, comes into play. Right, now tell us a bit about PolicyViz. When did you start that project up and, and what exactly are you trying to do with PolicyViz? PolicyViz is my one-man consulting shop, so it's literally the smallest firm you can get. It's just one person. Um, I started it just as a blog back in 2013. 
I wanted to be more of a part of the conversation in the data visualization field. I had met and reached out to some people in the field like Kim Reese, uh, who at the time was at Periscopic, Robert Cassara, who was at uh, Tableau, um, Alberto Cairo is at University of Miami. And so sort of, you know, got into these conversations with people and felt that I had some things to say about uh, the field and about the techniques. And also from the perspective of someone who came to data visualization more from the statistics and the mathematics side and the economic side, rather than from maybe a design side or even from a traditional or, or computer science side, which is where you know a lot of people come to it from. So I had I had some different perspectives and some different thoughts on on the way uh, people were talking about it and wanted to be a part of that conversation. And so I launched PolicyViz as just a blog, and since then it's sort of expanded into multiple different things. Uh, there's obviously parts of the site that are for uh, my books and materials around the books. I have a podcast now because, well, everybody has a podcast now, so. You know, why not me? Um, I also have a part of the website that's called Help Me Viz uh, that I, I launched a few years ago. The idea being that a lot of data viz critique takes place on Twitter, where it can be sort of drive-by critiquing, right? And, and people are not particularly constructive and they're not really thorough in their critiques. Or, you know, this is terrible, this is awful, never use pie charts, and they sort of move on. And I built Help Me Viz as a place where people could submit their visualizations, draft visualizations, along with an explanation in the data and say, you know, can you help me improve this? I should also say that I'm as guilty as, as many other people of doing that drive-by uh, critiquing, but I think we've, we've, the field has grown and matured in, in a lot of different ways um, where uh, we can have these, I think, more honest and open discussions and be willing to put out work that is not completely finalized, that is not the last thing that you're going to do, that it's okay to put out some drafts, to play around and to seek other people's input into how you can improve your, your, your final product. Right. Now you have a new book out called Better Data Visualizations, a guide for scholars, researchers, and wonks. You know, tell us about it and what you hope readers to gain from it. So this is the second book in the better series. I don't actually know if I'll, there is a series, but I, I like to think of it as a series. Uh, so my first book was Better Presentations. Um, this one, as you mentioned, is Better Data Visualizations. The book comes out of my teaching and workshops that I've been doing for a few years now. There's really two learning goals that I try to get across in the book. The first learning goal is, is best practices. So are there some things that you should do in all of your visualizations. And I have a number of guidelines right at the beginning of the book, just kicking it off that saying, you know, think about, for example, reducing the clutter, you know, don't use heavy grid lines and tick marks, um, integrating the graphics and the text. So where you're using active titles and you're using good annotation. Those are sort of your, what I view as some of the basic principles, but the meat of the book walks through more than 80 different graph types. So as I mentioned earlier, I came to the field of data visualization basically relying on line charts, pie charts, bar charts, area charts. Like kind of, that's like the economist bread and butter. And there's a lot of other graph types out there. And sometimes those other graph types are useful to help engage readers, which can be a goal in and of itself. And sometimes those graphs are better at, at visualizing the data that the line chart isn't the best way for, for some data. And so the primary sort of focus of the book is to show the reader hey, here's an alternative to the pie chart. Here's another way that you could visualize uh, geospatial data or uh, changes over time. And so for each of these little spreads, 
I walk through examples. I show comparisons. Um, there's a number of historical examples uh, that are that are often uh, talked about in the data visualization field. And then towards the end of the book um, are a few sections that I did haven't seen in a lot of other data visualization books in tech. So there's a section on qualitative data visualization, um, which I think a lot of people who are working with qualitative data rely on the word cloud. Well, there's lots of other ways that you can visualize qualitative data. There's a chapter on tables. Uh, there's a chapter on building a data visualization style guide, uh, which is, uh, I think, a big part for, for individuals and especially for organizations is having these, these standards and these styles. Um, and then I wrap the sort of the whole book together in a chapter on redesigns where I do about a dozen graphs where I redesign them, pulling all the information in the book together to say, here's the best practice uh, to make this graph clearer. And here is, you know, here's a line chart, for example, I'm gonna remake it as a dot plot or as a slope chart or whatever it is to demonstrate how I could try some of these alternative graph types to make this graph a little more effective uh, and better at communicating the, the message that the author wants to get across. Right. And, you know, in the book, you talk about the do's and don'ts of data visualization. Um, are there any like top three blunders that you see often that really make your blood boil or irk you in some way <laughs> or you find distracting? It's an interesting question because the way I, I think about these sort of like quote unquote data viz rules is there really aren't any rules to data viz like pie charts need to sum to 100%. Okay, I guess it's a rule, but I also view it as like common sense. Like we all know that pie charts are sum to 100%. Um, for me, the only rule of data viz is that your bar charts need to start at zero. Like that's, for me, that's the only rule. Um, otherwise you're overemphasizing the difference, but that's sort of like maybe a minor thing. I think my most hated things that people do are adding that third dimension, the 3D graphs when you just don't need it. Like I, and, and, and I get why people do it because they think it looks cool and they think it's engaging. I think at this point where we are in technology and platforms, is it looks kind of like clip art at this point. Like I don't, I don't really think it looks as cool as people kind of might think they they think it looks cool. Um, another thing that really bugs me is uh, the bar chart where people break the bar. So you have, you know, let's say you have uh, uh, two bars. You have a bar that's going to be the length of a million dollars and one that's a hundred dollars. And you want to get these. You don't want the the two bars to be so different from one another. So the person basically chops that first million dollar bar in half. And so there's like a little squiggle or something in the middle of the bar. And that's just like, it's an extension of that zero baseline. It's just so, it makes me cringe because you could pick anywhere to break that bar and you can make those bars look however you want them to look. I think any time where you can make arbitrary decisions to make your data look the way you want it to look or make your graph seem more convenient, uh, I think that's a kind of a dangerous game. Now, you mentioned earlier um, how in your book you talk about a data visualization style guide, and I just think this is brilliant, and it's very important for journalists and editors to have this. Yeah. For journalists, I think it helps with the branding of the, or of the organization. So when I look at The Economist magazine, you could show me any graph from The Economist without the newspaper, without the magazine around it, and I would know it comes from The Economist. Same thing with The Financial Times. It has that the, the background colors, the font, the look, it, it's very, uh, you can really identify it. And so I think for journalists and, and for news organizations, it's that, that kind of branding. For the people that I work with, with researchers and analysts who don't really care, like to be fully honest, they don't really care about the colors. They don't care about the font. Um, 
but to give them a style guide and, and the tools associated with that. So maybe an Excel template or an R theme um, to give them those tools where they can focus more on the analysis and the story and the graph type. And then they can just click a button or you know, run a little script that applies all of those styles. That really helps those sorts of people who aren't paying attention to the data viz really. They just want to say, I don't, I don't want to pick which color each line has to be, just tell me. And the other thing that, that we've been doing more in our style guide, so the Urban Institute style guide we're, we're sort of redoing right now um, in terms of what it will contain. So, so it will contain more instructions on, on particular graph types, but it also contains a section on accessibility, which we know is a, is a, is a big challenge uh, for people with vision impairments or physical impairments or intellectual impairments. Um, and on which I'm sure many news organizations probably have a team that, that does that, but many places don't have a team or even people are thinking about it. So we have a section on accessibility and we have another section that we've been developing even more so over the course of 2020, which is a section on uh, racial equity, uh, ethnic equity, gender equity, you know, any underrepresented groups. Um, as we think about, for example, what order do we place our labels in our graphs? What words do we use in our graphs? Um, what colors do we use to represent different racial groups? And I think a lot of people don't think about that, they just sort of take it for granted. And so we're trying to be more conscious about some of these issues in the visuals themselves, but also around the visuals themselves. Um, for, for listeners who are thinking about developing a style guide, the one, the one big thing I'll say about it is to treat it as a living document that um, can change as uh, people in the organization develop their own aesthetic and their approach to data viz. Mm, absolutely. Um, on datajournalism.com, we recently ran a piece on data sonification and using music and sound to either enhance or communicate you know, your story. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that from a data visualization, or maybe the word visualization, a data sonification perspective. Sonification. Yeah. Audification. Yeah. I love the concept of data sonification. I love the idea of it. I think it's another way that we can engage people. Well, people are listening to this right now on a podcast. You know, why can't we try to figure out a way to communicate data to them as they're listening to it? As the podcast community continues to accelerate, I think you're going to see more of these challenges with discussing data viz um, in, an, in an audio only format. And again, we can think about the accessibility issue. You know, how do you uh, provide content to people who may have vision uh, impairments who maybe can't necessarily see all the detail. And so there are some tools out there that are doing a good job of, of getting into the accessibility, but I, I'm a fan of the sonification. I'm interested to see how it evolves. So the way, for example, The Economist has done it a few times is if you imagine um, a line chart, you know, a line that's going up and then going down, the way The Economist has done it is they'll have you know, a tone for each data point along that line. And so it's sort of the, the tone increases, bum, 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 bum. And then, you know, as it turns around, bum, 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 comes back down. That's a kind of simple, I think, even natural way to think about the sound along that dimension. How would you do that with a bee swarm chart? How would you do that? How do you even do that with a pie chart? Like, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how you get, how you get into some of these graphs, but I'm interested to see how people will think about it. And I think especially for... Uh, for folks listening to this podcast who are uh, journalists and working in the media uh, industry, it is an interesting way to think about communicating with a maybe entirely new audience or giving an existing audience other avenues to get to your content. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, our next piece we're going to be working on uh, that I'm about to commission is on radio journalism and data and how do you work with production teams around that? What are the different types of treatments you can use for that? I don't know the answer to this yet, but it, soon we will find out because it's yeah. very interesting. It's very interesting. And, you know, we've seen all sorts of, you know, news podcasts. I mean, I listen to the Daily from the New York Times almost every day, right? Um you know, a lot of these news podcasts are are really impressive. And the fact that they go so quickly um, makes me wonder, how are they going to be able to integrate more data into those podcasts? Because you can, you know, it's easy to sort of say X percent of people are unemployed or, you know, Y percent of this or that. But how do you talk about these trends? How do you, you know, sort of plant that visual in people's minds through an audio channel channel only? And I think as humans, I think we're able to do that. Like, I think that's a natural thing for us to do. And there's a lot of interesting research that I just like to read every once in a while for fun, because it is kind of interesting to hear some of these like audio tricks. I think, for example, we all know some of like the visual um, mirage sort of things that might look like perspective and it's, you know, the line is straight and it's not curved, but it looks curved. There's a whole other world that does the same thing for audio. And it's a really interesting way in which our you know, our ears and our brains work. And um, it will be interesting to see how that how that changes and evolves over the next, you know, probably couple of years. I think it'll it will it will accelerate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you wrote another book, as you mentioned, called Better Presentations, a guide for scholars, researchers, and monks. The first part one, right? <laughs> first part one, that's right. Yeah. Um you know, and you talk a bit about fonts and colors and presentations. And I, I mean, journalists, we're not really giving that many presentations, but we are at conferences, particularly data journalism conferences. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious, like, do you ever follow any research on color psychology or color blindness or what works to influence people or if, if, if you're trying to achieve a certain thing? Yeah, it is interesting to me that there's a field of color theory. Like, I, I just enjoy the fact that that exists in the world. Um, I think one of my favorite people in this in this field is Maureen Stone, who works at Tableau now. You know, she's sort of uh, one of the leading researchers in this space. And I always say to people, I'm not a designer. So the slides that I have, you know, if you gave my slides to a graphic designer, they would make them look fantastic. But for still, for 95% of my audience members, what I have is is perfectly fantastic. Um, you know, I think there are lots of tools out there to figure out for, especially for color blindness or, you know, color vision deficiencies. Um, I like a tool called VizCheck, um, which allows you to just put in the color uh, codes and to see whether the contrast is high enough, which is oftentimes the sort of minimal barrier that you need to overcome for people with vision issues. There's another tool called Color Oracle that's a little, a little executable tool where if you click on it, it'll make your screen uh, mimic what someone with some of the more common types of color vision issues will, will see. Um, you know, for me, the way I think about it is when I create a graph, you know, color is one of the most powerful aspects of the, the graph. That's what people are going to key in on. If you give people a graph and you say, what are the things that you just simple things you observe about this, this graph, they're going to talk about colors and be one of the top things they're going to talk about. So when I think about using color in my visualizations, it's how can I use color to direct people's attention where I want it around the graph? So if I have a line chart with five different countries and I wanna focus 
the reader's attention on this line that's swooping downward for the United States. I'm going to make that line the brightest color. I might make that line a little thicker. You know, I'm going to make that line stand out. So it keys back to my message, my argument. And, and for journalists, that's, you know, whatever the headline is or whatever the message is in the, in the story. And, and for me, it's, you know, here's the research that I'm conducting and here's this pattern. You can see that this, you know, you know, accords with what I've been writing about in, in, in the report itself. Marvelous. Now, I'm curious, as a data viz expert, obviously you read a lot of different newspapers, magazines, you, you're online. What have you seen that you've been impressed with recently, either on the topic you're researching, like income inequality or COVID-19? Are there any things that stick out? Yeah, I mean, I think in the news area, my favorite data viz is, you know, obviously the New York Times and the Washington Post are fantastic. Um, the Los Angeles Times uh, does incredible work uh, with their data, their data viz. Um, the Guardian in the UK does, does great work. I also really like the Hindustan Times out of, out of India. Uh, the Berliner Morgan Post out of, out of Germany all do, all do great work. I think, you know, there are lots of things that we've seen over the past year or so related to COVID that have raised lots of interesting data visualization issues, right? For decades afterwards from this, we're gonna have graphs that are gonna have huge outliers. How are we going to address that? And, you know, um, as, a, as, as one concrete example, so uh, on my podcast, I just interviewed Charlie Smart from the New York Times, who's one of the many people working on their COVID dashboard. And around November, they had to make a decision about how they were going to change the color palette or what they were going to do about the number of infections and deaths from COVID in their dashboard because their colors went from, you know, some color to some other color. Um, were they going to change the scale or change the color palette? And so what they decided to do was, you know, the highest number prior to around November was like, let's say a dark orange. I don't actually know what the color is, but it's a dark orange. Instead of saying, instead of dark orange being, a thousand infections per day, and I'm just making up numbers here. Instead of a thousand numbers a day, we're going to make it two thousand uh, a day. Um, they actually added a whole other color ramp on top of that, so like the orange then faded into purple, um, and that was a, a a a decision that they had to make in real time. And those are decisions that I think we're going to be faced with now for a long time when we look at unemployment rates and measures of the economy and you know, obviously measures of mortality and life expectancy, there's a lot of things that are going to, uh, are going to be outliers. We're going to have these big dips and big swings in our graphs that we're going to have to figure out how to, how to deal with. And I think places like the Times and the Post um, have done a really nice job of figuring out, at least in the, in the very short term, how to deal with that. And I think we as, uh, as a data viz community are going to be faced with these challenges for, for many years to come. And do you think that missing data is still a major issue for either policy people like yourself or journalists in, in the United States, particularly around COVID? It seemed to be very hard to get the data across these different states, and it wasn't really easy to compare. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a very tricky thing because it, it combines lots of different elements of kind of that data ecosystem, right? How the data is collected, how we get it, how we analyze it, and then how we communicate it. And, you know, I think in the United States, probably around the world, we're, we're sort of, I think a lot of people are arguing that the number of COVID deaths related to COVID are, uh, are vastly underestimated. 
Um, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, you know, that's that's really a, a an issue for the scientists, right? Um, I don't think a journalist can can address that issue. They can write about it and they can make notes about it and say this is what the in the case of the United States, this is what the CDC says. Um, but we don't really know for sure. I think on a day to day basis, we are often faced with data elements that are missing, and I think it is important for people who are making graphs to make it clear to the reader where the data are missing. So I'll try to explain this. This gets back to our sonification uh, uh, discussion earlier. I'll try to try to explain this. It's an example in the book, but just imagine that you're plotting, let's just say a line chart, and you're going to go from 2010 to 2020. But let's say you're missing the data for 2011. Okay, so you're going to go 2010, there's a missing data point, then 2012 all the way to 2020. Um, what you want to do for that missing data point is to make it clear to the reader that that data point is missing. So you want to add some text or some annotation. Uh, you might want to change the, the format of the line. Maybe the line between, you know, across that, that part of the graph is a dashed line because it could be that the missing data is, is not necessarily linear between 2010 and 2012. Maybe it went way up in that year, went way down. We don't know. What you don't want to do is create a graph where you have the first data point is 2010 and the second data point is 2012 and then so on and so forth, where you just ignore the missing data. You want to make it clear to the reader that there is data that's, that's missing. So I think that's just a basic technique or approach when it comes to visualizing the data. There's another issue with missing data where and this comes back to this idea of, of racial equity in data visualization, where there's lots of data sets that do, that do not include or do not differentiate between different groups or communities. Um, and I know that this differs in different countries about what, in particular, government uh, governments can collect. So I know in France, for example, I, I think, I believe this is true, that in France, for example, they are not allowed to collect information on race. Um, in the United States, um, we do collect information on race, but what we see a lot of times is um, different racial groups are aggregated together. So as, a, as an example, we often see the Asian and Pacific Islander group presented as a monolithic group. Well, when you look deeper at the data, Asian Americans tend to fare quite well, economically speaking, in the United States. They tend to have very low poverty rates. They tend to have very high household incomes. Pacific Islanders, on the other hand, are sort of at the other end of the spectrum. They tend to have much higher poverty rates. They tend to have lower household incomes. And so when you aggregate these groups together and present them as one group, you're missing the variation. And so that missing data um, can be really problematic when it comes to policy solutions, when it comes to how you're going to uh, uh, come up with different policies or programs uh, to uh, support or help or, or whatever for, for different groups. So there's missing data in lots of different ways. We don't have the data or we have it, but it's sort of aggregated into this, into this larger category. And I think it's really important for all of us to think about the details in our data um, so that we can at least consider how we're presenting this monolithic group, this monolithic community as saying a thing about this one group where maybe there's a lot more variation sort of behind the scenes that we're not, either we're not able to measure it because it's not in the data um, or because we're not actually just presenting that information and, and maybe we should. Yes, absolutely. 
Now, what books, obviously you've written a few, but what other books do you recommend to help data journalists build their data literacy skills or maybe even data graphics understanding and their, their skills? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have a few that I really like. Um, I like um, all the books by Alberto Cairo. Uh, in particular, his most recent book, How Charts Lie, I think is uh, probably a must read for all journalists. Um to understand some of the fundamental ways that people lie with, with graphs. Um, Storytelling with Data by Cole Nussbaumer Naflick is another great book on, on introductory uh, data visualization techniques. I think that's a that's another great book. A lot of the books are, are akin to Cole's book and my book, sort of introductory data viz, but I think there are other books out there um, that might be um, intriguing for, for listeners. So um, uh, Info We Trust from R.J. Andrews is more of a historical uh, look at data visualization, I think is a really interesting book. Um, for those who are um, making graphs in, in specific tools, in particular R, I think the R for Data Science book by Hadley Wickham and, and Garrett uh, Groleman is a must-have. If you're, if you're coding in R, that's a, that's a must-have book. I have a bunch of R books, but that is the, that is the book that I go to all the time. Um, you know, there's there's a ton out there, and and a lot of them I use for inspiration. Um, a lot of them I use uh, as as technique books or tool books. Um, but I think those are sort of the ones that I think are are the ones that I really do highly recommend to folks. And finally, you know, what's next for you at PolicyViz? Are there any other upcoming books or resources you've got you're working on now? Boy, I don't know about another book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I think anyone who's ever written a book knows that once you get one out, you want to take about a decade to just sleep for a while. Um, so I have a few things. I, I just um, I'm just about to finish. Um, if you if you don't want to sit down and, and read uh, uh, my book or any other books, um, but you want to learn more about different graph types, um, I'm just about to finish up a daily video series that I've been posting since early January. It's called One Chart at a Time. Um, it'll be 56 videos when it's all done. Um, each video covers a different graph. It's from different people in the data visualization and data journalism fields. So everybody, I sort of ask people to do a five or six minute video about a specific graph type. And so every day I've been posting those for the next or for the last couple of months. Um, and that project is about to wrap up, um, which was a really exciting project to have so many different uh, people and personalities from so many different fields come in and talk about you know, specific graphs. So that's been really fun. Um, and then in uh, around early May, um, I'll publish a new um, a new report on racial equity in data and data visualization. It's building off of a paper that I published back in August, maybe September, that was like a four-page paper. Uh, this is with a colleague of mine, uh, Alice Fang at the, at the Urban Institute, but we have a much uh, longer in-depth uh, report and there's going to be a web, a web page devoted to it. Uh, that'll be coming out. And this will be, um, again, it's it's a combination of um, the conceptual reasons and rules about why we should be having these discussions and these thoughts, but also some practical considerations, not rules. We, we're definitely not going to say, you know, this is the word you need to use, um, but some but some practical considerations. And I'll just leave your, your listeners with one, um, because I think this is the one that that many of us face every day. When you are working with your survey data and you're publishing, let's just say, the unemployment rate by different racial groups, uh, especially in the United States, we often have white, black, Hispanic, and other. 
Well, that word other is just a, this is just a simple example. The word other is literally othering this group that we have decided as a society is not, you know, not going to have data collected for, for those particular groups. So are there other words that we could use instead of the word other? And so we've come up with a, a, a list of some suggested uh, words that people can use um, instead of that, 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 you know, othering, literally othering word. Um, and so that'll be coming out in, in May. Um, and then uh, I'll be wrapping up my, this season of my podcast in June, and then hopefully taking a little bit of a rest uh, over the summertime, uh, hopefully vaccinated and, uh, and a little bit of de-stressing time. So that's, that's what I have coming forward for me for the next few months. Marvelous. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Thanks, Tara. It's been great chatting with you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.